podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the80sruled.com for more 1980s awesomeness. Was the formula for the quintessential fantasy film perfected in the 1980s? Turn around and look at what you see. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Break something. My shoulder, maybe. Uh, Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of puppet lovers. (laughs) That sounds wrong. (laughs) Can can one love a puppet and not have the police involved? Probably not. Okay, well, hey. Hey, my name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and fellow puppet lover. <laughs> and he's also the co-host, Ray. What's up, Will? Not much. Just loving on some puppets. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be talking about what made the fantasy films of the 1980s so perfect. All right, They were just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And a model to be followed you know, in future decades, if they were smart enough. And a little bit later on the show, we're going to be joined by Tammy Stronach who starred in one of the most iconic fantasy films of the 1980s, one that still resonates with us today, The Never-Ending Story. And not only that, but uh, Tammy and her husband are right now making a new film, Man and Witch, that's going to be an homage to the 1980s fantasy films that we grew up with. And appearing in that film, other 1980s icons like Sean Astin and Christopher Lloyd. And the special effects are going to be done with puppets. So we're just, it keeps coming back to puppets. That's right. You know, that reminds me, friend and listener to the show, Kat and her husband, Scott, agree. They came to this conclusion separately. They believe that I sound somewhat like Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog. Now that was Ray. Holy cow, that was great. Thanks. That was really good. Yeah, I do, right. I do impressions from time to time. Okay. You know that. Yeah, now I want to hear a conversation between Kermit <laughs> and Mama, Mama Fratelli. Fratelli. All right, what do you got? Are, are you a pirate? Oh, that's it. <laughs> that's fantastic. Now, I do think that I do sound like a Muppet. Some, and my, When you hear your own voice, you kind of think, I think I sound like a character of some kind. I'm not doing a voice. This is my voice, but I don't know. Hey, yeah, whatever. You know. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it. It actually will help you be notified when a new ep- episode is published. Because you might, you know, you might not know that. And then suddenly, boom, hey. Good news, something's new. And it's free. To subscribe is free. We got to, they're, they're changing the word even on Apple now. Instead of subscribe, they're, they're changing it to follow because too many folks are thinking subscribe means money because that's generally how it's used, you know? So, and also rate and review it because that actually helps us expand the show because it gets recommended to other folks then. And that's also free. That's even freer. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. So, as a kid in the 1980s, did you frequent Pizza Hut? Did you have a Pizza Hut where you lived? We had two Pizza Huts in our town. Wow. Competing Pizza Ten Huts. Ten minutes apart. <laughs> How popular was Pizza Hut where you lived? Well, let me tell you something. This yep. is what's weird about my hometown yep. here in Ohio. Yep. We had two Pizza Huts, okay. two McDonald's, mm-hmm. two Burger Kings, wow. two Taco Bells, yeah. two Kentucky Fried Chickens. Yeah. Do you know how many people were in my town at that time? <laughs> I was going to say, it's a small town, right? About 60,000 people. Wow. Okay. And we needed all that. Yeah. Oh, we even had two dairy marts across the street from each other. So I'm learning like nobody cooked in the no, 1980s no. in uh, Brunswick. Yeah. In contrast, the city I grew up in was the second largest city in, in, in New Jersey. And I could think of where two McDonald's were and they're miles apart. Miles. <laughs> far, and there's far many more people in there. There's probably 60,000 people in our neighborhood. And we didn't have hmm. a McDonald's within walking distance. You had to get a car and drive. That's crazy. Okay. Well, in any, in any case, it seems like, oh, there's my catchphrase. In any case, that's the other one I tried to get rid of. Dang it. See, now it's in my head again. <laughs> Son of a gun. Now, I'm just going to be can, silent. Can you, can you go with the anywho? Anywho. So I didn't realize that we didn't have a Pizza Hut where I grew up when I was oh a kid. Oh, my God. It's one of the things we didn't have. Now, on the East Coast, you know, you hear folks say this, I think, even out here. It's kind of famous for pizza out there, second to Italy. So there's tons of just local mom and pop pizzerias. No, we didn't have any chain pizza places that I could think of growing up. So we didn't have Pizza Hut. So I was surprised to, to understand or learn the association between Pizza Hut in the 1980s. Hmm. And I learned this because in restaurantbusinessonline.com, 
they had revealed to us just this past week that Pizza Hut is now going to tap into 80s nostalgia when you order pizza from there by letting you play Pac-Man on its pizza boxes. According to Restaurant Business Online, the chain has debuted a new campaign featuring the iconic video game on its boxes that can be played with augmented reality. So there's going to be a QR code you scan on there, and then by holding your phone up and looking at the box, you'll see the Pac-Man characters appearing on the box there, and I guess you move them and dodge it. Holding the phone up to your face like virtual glasses. Yep. Oh, bouncing off walls and tripping over furniture. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> you, yeah, and you actually have to say that the whole time. Nom, 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 nom. Liar! 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 <laughs> See, I'm ready for you now. I asked for a suggestion as to a clip I can play whenever you're completely us. And I got that suggestion from Lynn in the rumpus room. In fact, if anybody... If you, I anybody, totally, you yeah. know, I tried to sneak in and recommend one without... Anybody realize it, realizing it no, was Everybody me. saw it coming. Everybody, you're not so, your name is on it. It's not like, <laughs> your name says Ray. I like how you said it as if people don't know it's you, you know? <laughs> hey, and if you'd like to help us keep Ray in check or otherwise help us, you know, guide the show, you should join us in, uh, in the Rumpus Room group of our Facebook page, mm-hmm. right? Okay, now what, what were we talking about? What did you say? Oh, that you're running around the house. Yeah, no, so no, yeah. It seems like, mm. no, you actually play on the box there to do that. And they've also enlisted the help of, I mean, hired for money, right? The comedian Craig Robinson, who you know on The Office and Hot Tub Time mm. Machine, a number of funny things. And he said, everyone has their own special Pizza Hut memory. Growing up in the 1980s, mine was going into Pizza Hut and devouring those Pac-Man dots just like I did my pizza. Those arcade games and restaurants, there was nothing better as a kid, end of quote. So did you have arcade games in your local pizza hut, you know? Absolutely. You had a Pac-Man game. You had a Pac-Man. You really had Pac-Man. Oh, every, I think every pizza huh. had a, a Pac-Man. I think that was part of the deal. So yeah, maybe they had a some kind of relationship with uh, Namco I, or whoever. I, I think so. Yeah. And then you had those red plastic cups. Now I wonder if they chose Pac-Man or worked this out because Pac-Man is eating something. Pac-Man also looks like a pizza with a slice missing. In fact, the story is that the designer of Pac-Man was having pizza. Someone took a slice out and he saw that shape and thought, oh, that would be a good shape for the video game. <laughs> yeah. I also like why they changed the name from Puck-Man oh, to Pac-Man. Liar! <laughs> liar! Liar! That's not a lie. That's not a lie. That's true. Do your own research, people. <laughs> yes, that's true. I know that. <laughs> now I could actually, oh, now I realize the power of media where I could actually just play that when you mm-hmm. are telling the truth if I don't want people to believe it. It's too much power for one man. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. hey, in other 80s news, do you remember there was a rumor that Ryan Reynolds was developing a secret Thundercats movie? That was a rumor. Now, it turned out <laughs> Ryan Reynolds was making a film with Michael Bay for Netflix. The rumor was that when that film comes out on Netflix, it's a Thundercats movie. In fact, it turned out to be a film called Six Underground, which I haven't seen, so I don't know if it's any good. But on the heels of his Godzilla uh, versus Kong, which just opened this past week, Adam Wingard is now turning his attention to direct Thundercats, a live-action, big-scale uh, feature film based on the animated series that ran from 85 to 89. When Deadlight asked him whether you're going to make a big theatrical version of the Thundercats, you know, cartoon that we love from the 1980s. And he said... He said, Thundercats, ho! All right, he did not say that, folks. He did not say that. That's not here. And he said, Thundercats is a dream project for me. Were you a fan of the Thundercats cartoon? Nah. Oh, dang, really? I <laughs> love the Thundercats. Nah, I could take them or leave them. I love the Thundercats. I love the Silverhawks. <laughs> I love the Inspector Gadget. I think these all were on around the same <laughs> they, time. Uh, they, they, the one looked like a weird version of He-Man. Hmm. Oh, the Thundercat, like the, uh, yeah, the main like guy? The, uh, the cat one. The they're all cat cats. <laughs> <laughs> they're all cats. That's in the name. Uh, what's his name? Lionel? Yeah, Lionel is the main dude, yeah. You got, uh, yeah, he's kind of like a, a knockoff He-Man. Yeah, sort of. And if you remember, we talked with uh, John Reddick uh, uh, of Gen X Grown Ups that he's actually supposed to be a kid, too. That just It's kind of like a Shazam scenario where he's got mm-hmm. the mind of a kid but the body of an adult. So the film we have learned will use the animated series that I love from the 1980s as a jumping off point. But that uh, Wingard then is going to take it in a direction that he's been wanting to do and dreaming about for, for years now. Uh, it's going to be- A musical? You know? <laughs> liar! 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 
You're going to wear the button out. I'm going to have to make that shorter. Our show's going to be really long. I guess I should impress it if you're just inquiring as about something. You didn't state it was a musical, right? You're going to look stupid if it says musical. <laughs> then I got to make something for myself. I'll, get the, I'll use that horn, the trumpet sound from uh, Price is Right. Well, we're going to look forward to seeing the Thundercats movie. I'm very excited about this. Hopefully, it will live up to what I liked about the film. We certainly have the technology to do it. Now, it would have been funny if they tried to do a live-action version of this in the 80s or 90s. It would have looked terrible. Uh, it would terrible. have looked horrible. It would have looked like uh, Beauty and the Beast, yeah, the oh, way uh, that costume was. Yeah, who is that? They'd guy? all look like that. What's now, this could, be, yeah. this could be really cool, though. Yeah. Because they got the opportunity to take it in whatever direction he was going to go. Maybe it'll be awesome. Yeah. The only other cartoon I'd love to see turn into a live-action film. Still... And I think they may have made one in Japan a few years ago, but it didn't seem to interest me, is if they turned uh, what we called Battle of the Planets, which is known everywhere else as Gachamon, into a live-action film. I loved that show. I'll tell you what, since I found yeah. out about this Brave Star, I kind of oh. want a live-action version of that. That would be cool, too. I'd be for that, yeah. Dead kids, taking drugs, <laughs> a man-horse thing. <laughs> one guy riding on his friend's back when he's a horse. Yeah. Hmm. All right, hey, in other 80s news, once again, it's time to play. In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. The kids love it. Yeah. So we have just learned, and this, I'm going to, it's all over the internet, but I've learned this specifically from WGNTV.com. Someone found an unopened copy of Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers that was bought in 1986, and then they stuck it in a desk drawer and forgot about it until a couple of months ago, I guess. And it was sold at auction by Heritage Auctions in Dallas just this past Friday. So this is Super Mario. Yep. 1986, unopened. Yeah. What are you, Googling something? Don't Google. I'm using my pen. I'm oh, writing okay. it down. All right, okay. So I can use my massive brain powers to figure this out. Yeah. Now I'm going to tell you, we talked about one, I believe, last year. And at that time, we learned that another unopened copy of, of uh, Mario Brothers sold, one that was from 87, fetched $114,000 at a heritage auction last summer. Okay, this is a two-parter. I'm going to give you this. Okay. I think this one sold for, mm -hmm. I'm going to say $142,000. Okay. And I'm going to say this one's a forgery. Wow. That's so exciting. Wait, should I hit the button on you? <laughs> no, no. He's just guessing. I can't. Yeah, this it, is a speculation. Yeah, spec oh. I think next year we uh -oh. find out yeah. this thing is a fake. You took it too far. You took it too far. I know what you're up to now. You're trying to figure out an end run around my button here now. By this next year, you'll find out I'm telling the truth. No. Okay. So first things first. It's not a 142,000. It might be a forgery. We don't know. I guess as far as it's been authenticated by the Heritage Auction House, they believe it's a real one. And it sold for $660,000. Holy I mean, I want to start going through all my drawers. I wish I lived in this house longer. Then I know I'd have something here. But you know what would be a wise business investment for us? Yeah. Buying houses mm -hmm. that were built in around oh. 70 something yeah. mm. where we might be able to dig some of this crap out of the attics. Mm -hmm. mm. Oh, yeah. So we need like an estate. We need one where that someone just, the owner died. So right. they're just like, it's one a, it's owner, tag sale. It's, it's or got to it's, it's be a single owner with kids. We got to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> the Jeff kids, did they like video games? Did yeah. they go to Pizza Hut? Because then we'll know they yeah. liked Pac-Man. I think you're onto something there. Yeah. This could be our retirement fund. This could be a whole, like, you know, one of those uh, learning channel, like uh, ah, dude. those auction yeah. shows where we find houses, but we... <laughs> our only, we're not flipping yeah. them. No. We're just, <laughs> we're just uh, looking for video games in the attic yeah. and then burning them down for the insurance <laughs> money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you'd call that show, but yeah. I would call it burning down the house. <laughs> That's perfect. Yes. <laughs> All right, we'll get on that. Hey, that was Age News. Dun, 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 dun. Today on the show, as I mentioned earlier, is we're going to be talking about the fantasy films of the 1980s, our favorites, some that weren't so great, and what makes a good fantasy movie. Later on the show, just a little while, so hang in there, we're going to be speaking with someone who not only appeared in one of the most iconic fantasy films of the 1980s, The NeverEnding Story, but she and her husband are also right now making a film that is an homage to those films that we grew up with. And of course, I'm talking about Tammy Stronach. Okay, so let, let's you and I uh, talk about uh, fantasy films. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. right, so, okay, I'll just give you some stats here first, some interesting stuff. Right. So, you know, AFI, the American Film Institute, you know, they come out with these lists. 
they have that top, they have a hundred films that are in there that they honor, like the best films of all time. And they only seem to update it periodically, maybe roughly every 10 years or so. Included them in those lists that they have, they have lists by genre. So the AFI top 10 fantasy films list was introduced in 2008, hasn't been updated since. Taking a look at that list, it's not a surprise to me that before the 1980s, there are six films from other decades that are on the list. Then you get two in the 1980s, and then after the 1980s, there's only two afterward. My point being, hey, look, right there, statistically, this respected organization, you've got two from the 1980s. You've only got two others, I think, from the 40s or 50s. A, co- a handful spread out through the, out the decades, and the films got worse after that. I don't think they understand what a fantasy movie is. You're absolutely right. You hit something, uh, and you hit the nail on the head, or, or rather you pulled the sword from the stone, maybe, instead. Because in researching fantasy films in the fantasy genre broadly, broadly, I learned that there's kind of a debate or there's different takes on how you define a fantasy film or how you define fantasy literature or how the word fantasy has been used over the years. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Freud used it in one way. This uh, academic who wrote about fantasy in, I believe, literature, Totarov, I'm going to say, you know, he used it a slightly different way. The AFI describes fantasy films as, quote, a genre where live action characters inhabit imagined settings and or experience situations that transcend the rules of the natural world. And that said, you may be surprised to learn what two 80s films are on the top 10 uh, or AFI's top 10 fantasy films list. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on telling you what those two are uh, until we talk about uh, the definition of a fantasy film. Uh, but yeah, but what you, what is your definition of fantasy movie? Well, maybe we should talk about the elements of what a fantasy film has. Okay. It's otherworldly. Yeah. You're going to another world. Okay. Okay. Um, it's a world in which some sort of magic exists. You know. Um, okay. That yes, that's that's important because that that definitely is part of my definition. Yeah. And I think if your magic is explained in a scientific, realistic way, then that's not fantasy we're talking. It's out. About. That's sci-fi fantasy. That's different. Yep. Usually, there's a power dynamic. So you've got a king, you've got an emperor, a ruler, a prince, a princess. There's usually often royalty or a government, you know, that's at odds with the little people. Yeah, and I would say that is the medieval aspect of a fantasy movie. Okay. Castles, kings. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. And I guess in many of the films in the 1980s were sort of in that genre, you know, not only in fantasy, but aligned with that sort of vibe. Not all of them, but many, mm-hmm. majority of them. Absolutely. What else? Well, there's another element. Okay. The combination of practical effects ah, with yes. puppets mm-hmm. and a little CGI as the 80s went on. Mm-hmm. But you can't go all CGI in an 80s movie. It yeah. has to have CGI, puppet, and full-scale- Large-scale miniatures, yeah. Practical yeah. effects. You're right. I agree with you 100%. I think one thing we overlooked is, another aspect of it is, not only is it otherworldly, but there is a sense of world building. So there has to be, you know, very quickly in the film, you have to get the sense of the- the scale of the world, how things work, what the characters are, etc. Mm-hmm. But in along those lines, I guess I'm going to make it. I'm going to say it differently than you, because you're building a different world, a fantasy world. However, you present present it has to be like quote realistic to us as a viewer. So if you've got CGI and you can really make us believe that that thing's real, some films you can, great. But as we experienced in the 1980s, it's more effective to have a model of something or a puppet or something like you're saying. Yeah, I, I think the the one movie. That comes to mind when I think of CGI, puppet, and practical effects yep. would be the Hydra scene in Willow. Because hmm. you have all three of those things because they had to build the thing for him to jump on. They have, you see the big monster moving around. Yep. And you have the puppet where they throw it off the bridge and the, the egg lands in the water and all that stuff. Yeah. So Willow, yep. fantasy movie. That's has, true, sure. Has all the things you need. Yep. And there's there's another thing that I figured out. You, you got to have a hero. Mm-hmm, sure. Is there a large man who wears no shirt, a loincloth, <laughs> and has weird leathery yep. footwear? <laughs> you got to have a goofy sidekick. Ah. And you got to have a hot chick. Hmm. That's definitely true of 80s films, sure. And yep. for a fantasy movie, yep. you got to have a sorcerer. Hmm. Not a wizard. Oh. It's not a wizard. So and how do you draw the distinction f- f- between those two? Because for some reason in the 80s, they called them sorcerers. Oh, they called them sorcerers. They just call them sorcerers. I don't know why. So yeah, along with the idea that there's some kind of magic, you've got someone who's like all powerful or very powerful right. using the magic of the world. 
Yep. And the normal folk who live yep. underneath the castle shadow mm-hmm. somehow are going to defeat the sorcerer. Well, now you make me realize, in addition to all those things, building off that, there's usually one very powerful magic item. Oh, yeah. That's either being wielded by the bad guy, wielded by the good guy, or it's they're in a race to get it, or they yeah. need it to finish, you know, solve the problem they have. I don't know, I feel like we got to jot these all down here now. This is different than we started here. Man, I tried jotting them all down, but I got confused. Do I jot down half, what did you say, half naked man in a loincloth? Was that part of the Yeah. Th- uh, most fantasy movies have a dude who's gigantic yeah. that never wears a shirt. Mm-hmm. And he has to save the average people who aren't big and they do wear shirts. So they're <laughs> obviously inferior. Shirts versus skins. Yes. And he's got to have a sidekick. Uh, Conan's the perfect example of this. He's got the goofy sidekick, um, but then he's got the chick. Hmm. So you've got Conan, you've got the chick, you got the sidekick who's funny, hmm. and you got, uh, what's his face? Uh, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones' character, yeah. who's the dude who turns into snakes. All right, I got it down. Now we've got seven elements here. So sure. by 82, yeah. the genre is perfected in the 80s. Hmm. Okay, because you're saying with Conan, it got perfected by them. So okay. let me ask you this then. All right, so let's use some specific examples like you're you're alluding to here. But I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna throw some challenges at you. And right. I got a bunch of films here that are from lists on the internet I found where different organizations said these are the top fantasy films of the 1980s. And some of okay. them I jotted down, even though I wasn't sure how I felt about it because I wanted to run them by you. Okay. Big Trouble in Little China. Nah, no, not a fantasy movie. It's set yeah. on Earth, but they do venture into this magical world in Chinatown. Kung Fu movie. You got magic. You got magic. Got a half-naked dude. You got a truck driver and magic mm-hmm. in China. So, no, not a fantasy movie. It certainly, it doesn't feel right, certainly. But as I look at our list, I don't know how we distinguish it, I guess. Big Trouble in Little China yep. is in a genre all its own. I call that mm-hmm. uh, the Kurt Russell genre. <laughs> so, your point about... They have sidekick. Jack Burton is like his own sidekick because his actual yeah. sidekick in that movie is not funny. He's yeah. like, you know, he's part of the muscle. Yeah, so that one, I don't think that qualifies. Mm, okay, all right, okay. Gremlins. Is Gremlins a fantasy movie? No, Gremlins is a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Listen to our Is This a Christmas Movie <laughs> episode. We've already proven that. But, you know, I did, I did notice... You know, when folks are trying to define fantasy genre film, they did, as we mentioned at the beginning, make a distinction between sci-fi fantasy. So like, like, like we said, if magic is science, then it's sci-fi. Yeah. But if, yeah. And, uh, and like sci-fi fantasy is Flash Gordon. Yeah. That's sci-fi fantasy. Yep. It's like fantasy. Yeah. But in space. <laughs> now, does that mean space is always sci-fi fantasy? Yes. If you're in space... It's mm. sci-fi fantasy. Wait, so what about Star Wars? Is that fantasy? No, sci-fi. No. Yeah, sci-fi. No, Star Wars is science fiction. Yeah. So you got the sci-fi fantasy. Gremlins, I saw someone say that if you if the fantasy elements or the magic elements of it, which we would have to say are the gremlins, are used to hurt, terrify, scare people, etc., that's a horror fantasy. Maybe it's just a horror film, but maybe it's horror fantasy because it's got these fantastical elements like these creatures. Christmas movie set in the 80s. All right, never mind. Done. What it's out. Liar! Liar! All right, Liar! <laughs> okay. All right, maybe I'm getting a little overzealous with the button. So we started off this conversation talking about the AFI's top 10 fantasy film list. And we talked about the AFI's definition of fantasy film, which was way more broad than uh, what, what, we, what we're coming to here. So I want to tell you now what the two 1980s films are. Uh, that are on the top 10 fantasy film list of the AFI, okay? So here, here's one. Here's the first one. Field of Dreams. Um, no. <laughs> Baseball right. movie. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of a magic in it, right? He brings back all these dead people, like ghosts, I guess, including his father, uh, and Shoeless Joe. Um, I'm thinking that the people who made this list yeah. don't know what the f*** they're doing. <laughs> the American Film Institute? Yeah, I think they're they're like um, those critics who only like foreign films, mm. and then they all over Ghostbusters and you know Caddyshack and movies like that because they're beneath them. Hmm. Uh, you know, maybe yeah, maybe they couldn't uh, they couldn't um, what bring themselves down to the level of a Willow or Conan the Barbarian. Right. They drink their Pepsi with their pinky finger in the air. <laughs> so the other film on here, then I think I know your answer. They say again, this is the AFI. This isn't me. 1988. Okay. So this is the top ten fantasy films. 1988's Big. <laughs> All right, Man. I mean, you got magic, 
but there's no, I guess the powerful weapon might be the thing, the fortune teller. You got it. Hero and a sidekick, I suppose. Uh, technically, is it a fantasy movie? No. Because the kid, he doesn't, he wants to be big, but then he's like, ah, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Like, if he got big and he was like, okay, now I'm going to wear a loincloth and no shirt yeah. and go kill people with a sword and do things <laughs> and save the world, then it's yeah. a fantasy movie. Uh, I think in some of these, in Field of Dreams and in Big, I will say, this reminds me of some of the definitions folks were using in connection with fantasy, where they were talking about fantasy as wish fulfillment that would be in this category he wishes his he could talk to his dad or wishes he could have money to keep the farm the kid wishes he literally wishes he could be big but that's using fantasy in a different way than what we're talking about i think our definition of fantasy is different than theirs yes because ours is grounded in dungeons and dragons and tolkien Hmm. and i think ours is you know consistent with probably most of the academics that talk about fantasy if if yeah for most people, I think if you say fantasy, they yep. think Tolkien. Mm-hmm. They think Lord of the Rings now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the people who did that list should be fired, <laughs> and they need to bring in new people. Yes. You know who those two people because, are to start with. Uh, obviously. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Well, hey. All right. So let's say we got the job. What movies go on the list? Uh, obviously, Willow, Beastmaster, Conan. Dark Crystal? Uh, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth. I'll even give Labyrinth, that one yeah. in there. What about Legend? Oh, Legend, Clash of the Titans. Uh-huh. Um Lady Hawk? Lady Hawk. I'll even throw the barbarians in there. <laughs> that's got everything uh, you need, man. Yep. They're their own sidekicks. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, Red Sonya. Red Sonya. Red Sonya, yeah. All right, what about one of my favorite little appreciated or underappreciated films of the 1980s? I think this might be a fantasy film. Time Bandits. I, I, I knew you were going to say Time ah. Bandits. I remember we watched kn- it that one time on vacation. Yeah, yeah. And I say, I'm going to allow it. Yes, because right. they all have, most of them got British accents, don't they? <laughs> oh, is that an element we should put on here? Someone has to be British. Well, with the medieval feel. I see. It, it's very British. Like in right. America, we don't have castles. Well, yeah. Yep. In Time Bandits, you got the map as the powerful weapon. You've yeah. got literally like a sorcerer, you know, it's like the devil, but he's a sorcerer using magic. It's a, they visit many different worlds, including some medieval type worlds. But even the aesthetic where the bad guy is and takes them, it feels like a medieval place. It could be a labyrinth or yeah. a legend, you know? All right. How about uh, Princess Bride? Oof. You know what? I'll allow a Princess Bride. Yeah. Well, because that's yeah. one of the greatest movies ever made. Right. But it, but I think it, it checks all the worlds. Uh, oh, sorry. It checks all of our boxes here. It's a different world. There's definitely magic. That's where I get my quote from that I <laughs> keep torturing you with <laughs> yeah. or keeping you in check, I should say. There's uh there's magic, mm-hmm. there's swordplay. Yep. There's pirates. A couple of sidekicks. Uh, when they do the the sword fight, they're at the top of the cliff. It's mm-hmm. like uh, some ruins. Yeah. There's castles. I don't know if you could say we have a sorcerer though. He's definitely a bad guy, but he doesn't we have, have Billy Crystal is the sorcerer. Oh, I guess I was thinking the sorcerer has to be bad. And then you well, you also have the guy who takes the year from him. Uh, That's true. Yeah. That's a magical thing. Yeah. Christopher Guest's character is kind of like yeah. the sorcerer because he's goes along and uh, he's the one who has that uh, torture device. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Is, what the hell does he say at that? He goes, uh, I've just sucked one year of your life away. I may one day go as high as five, but I really don't know what that would do to you. So let's just start with what we have. <laughs> Something like that. And I, I, you know what I also want to point out? Yeah. Almost every one of these movies was made yep. before 85. You know, I did find that curious too, that there was, it seems, I haven't been able to confirm, it's going to take a while to really dig through it, if we had more fantasy films in the 80s than any other decade. Anecdotally, it seems to be true. But I, I did find that interesting too, that we had more at the beginning of the 80s and they tapered yeah. off. Of course, you had your Princess Bride at the end of the 80s. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, I think, is a fantasy film. It's not a very... Loved film. I I enjoy it. I like most of Terry Gilliam, Gilliam's films, but that also came mm-hmm. at the end of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, Labyrinth and uh, Willow are towards the end too, but almost every other movie we mentioned yeah. is before 85. Yeah. Look, we can't conclude this without, uh, in order to be thorough, we have to talk about one of the most impactful fantasy films from our childhood, mm-hmm. if only because it scarred us in some ways. <laughs> it didn't scar ending, me, but. Well, the never-ending story, of course, you know, which uh, included our guest today, Tammy Stronick. Yeah. Well, that one scene with the horse, come on, that every child, you can't, the horse. I, I definitely think this should make it's that killed. list. Yeah. This is a fantastic story. Yep. You got your world, you got your magic. Yeah. 
you got a hero, you got sort of a sidekick. I mean, Bastion's, well, no, you got a few sidekicks, actually, if you think about Rockbiter and all these characters that he meets, but also Bastion's kind of a sidekick to Atreyu in a sense, even though they're not in the same world together. Um, yeah, you got everything there, I'm just going to say. Yeah, I enjoy this one a lot because you yeah. have the two worlds mm-hmm. going simultaneously. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. I like the way it's it's set up. Mm-hmm. So you get a little bit of both. It's, it's similar to the Princess Bride in that you got the book going. Oh, yeah. You got the story going. What year was Princess Bride? 87. So so Never Ending Story was first. Yeah. Technically, one of the greatest movies ever made stole from one of the other greatest movies <laughs> ever made. You know, the, <laughs> the Princess Bride is based on a book by William Goldman, who also did the screenplay. Yeah, but I don't know if I don't know if in the book he deals with. But, I guess, but how do you know he didn't read the other book? <laughs> the Never Ending Story book. Because yeah. because the Princess Bride book came out first. Oh yeah. No, hey, we loved the Never Ending Story in our house. Uh, we introduced yeah. it to our kids both when they were pretty young, and then oh, yeah. my daughter wanted this uh, stuffed animal that looked kind of like Falcor, and it was a giant. I don't know if it was a dragon or something. It was a giant stuffed animal. It's like a dragon. Something she could ride on. It's a dragon dog. Yeah. So what I would do, well, Falcor is, yeah. But the stuffed animal she wanted wasn't a dragon dog or it wasn't, in D&D, there's a dog that looks like, a dragon that looks like a dog. I can't, certain dragons have fur. Well, a lot of those early drawings are poorly oh, done. luck dragon. Luck dragon, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the luck dragon. But you have to remember the D&D books yeah. were drawn by some dude who yeah. didn't really know what the hell they were telling him to draw. Mm. They were like, hey, a luck dragon. Yeah. But they didn't give him any more instruction. All those guys were great, though, coming up with these. Yeah. Things. They were like, well, I guess I'll draw a dog. <laughs> his dog sitting on his lap while he's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we got, so we did cave, like we do too often. I'm ruined. I've ruined my children for, for life by getting them things that they want all the time. <laughs> we got a stuffed animal. She was like four years old or five years old. And then what I would do is I would uh, run around the house with it <laughs> up over my head and say, I tray you, I tray you. <laughs> Remember, he Falcor's looking for a tray with that you. Uh, and then I'd, he'd swoop down and get my daughter. I thought you were going to say you had her on top of it. Oh, yeah. Above no. your head oh, no. running we, through the house. Yeah, we did that too, Singing yeah. the song. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. That's right. It had that great theme song by Limal, yeah. Yeah. who was the lead singer of a 1980s group. Pausing. I'm blanking out of it too, man. Kaja, Kaja Gugu. Kaja Gugu. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's just nuts. Okay. Anything else on fantasy films? No, we've been talking for four hours. So. All right. <laughs> All right. So, hey, let's talk to someone who appeared in one of our favorite fantasy films of the 1980s and is working on a new, quote unquote, 1980s fantasy film today. When we return in a moment with our guest, Tammy Stronach. guest today made her feature film debut at a mere 10 years of age when she appeared as the childlike empress in 1984's The Never-Ending Story. And although she and her family decided against a career in Hollywood, she never stopped performing. Just before her focus turned to theater and dance, our guest released a 45 that includes the songs Fairy Queen and Riding a Rainbow. Later, our guest was an ensemble member of the acclaimed physical theater company, The Flying Machine Theater, where her production of Frankenstein earned a Drama Desk nomination. In 2000, she formed her own dance company, which, in the past 20 years, has performed in countless notable venues throughout New York City and has toured the world. In 2018, her paper canoe company was honored with a Parents' Choice Gold Award and a Family Choice Award for Beanstalk Jack, her musical retelling of Jack and the Beanstalk. And now, our guest, along with her husband, are producing and starring in Man and Witch, a movie that will pay homage to the 1980s fantasy films we grew up with, including the one that first brought her to our attention. To learn more about her many accomplishments and keep up to date on her current work, visit TammyStronach.com. Please welcome to the show, Tammy Stronach. Hi. 
Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, we've been anxious to speak with you since we first read in the Hollywood Reporter in July of 2020 that not only are you returning to the screen, but that you and your husband are, are busy working on a film, Man in Witch, that will bring that will be an homage to the 1980s fantasy films that uh, we grew up with. And that's super exciting to us. Thank you. It's so great to talk to folks who were part of the 80s pop culture, but to find someone who also is now trying to bring it to a new generation, that's thrilling. Well, yeah, I mean, I I was, you know, in the Neverending Story, obviously, but I was also just an 80s kid that grew up on E.T. and on all of those movies labyrinth you know the dark crystal like i was a huge huge fan of all that stuff and i think when i had my daughter and i was trying to um think about what kind of stories i want to share with her and what kind of stories moved me when i was a kid i started to sort of feel like those 80s stories had a lot of heart in them sure and um And I kind of missed the sensibility of some of those films. And so um, and then I went to Comic Cons, which was kind of a new experience for me. (laughs) I really went just to see Meet Noah. Like I got lured into it and I was like, oh, I haven't seen him in so long. It'd be so nice to have coffee with him. You know what? I'll go. I don't know what this Comic Con thing is. And then, in fact, it was incredibly moving. And I was so shocked by number of people for whom um, sort of movies and fantasy became this launching pad for their own creativity and this kind of community. And it was really like opened a whole world for me. And and then everyone was like, when are you going to come back to film? And when are you going to do something? And then I came home and I told my husband and he's like, well, when are we? And I was like, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so then the seeds got planted and we started um, thinking about how we might do it. And then it was crazy. It just like snowballed from there. It was like it all started just happening. Oh, like I, we were just like trying to catch up to the ball at that right. point. Wow, that's exciting. So you said you weren't you're an 80s kid, obviously, and love those films of the 80s. Do you find that? having been in one of those films that we enjoyed, did it change how you may have enjoyed them having been behind the curtain or behind the camera, so to speak? No. <laughs> You're still just a kid. <laughs> I mean, yeah. When I watch a film, I'm just, just like everybody else. I just fall yeah. into the story. And I think, I think being in the never Ending story did make me sort of understand that a life in the arts is possible and that there's something really beautiful that can happen when a team of artists are working together kind of for a common goal. And that I felt really at home in an environment where such a tangible goal, like everyone's just working together for this one tangible goal. And it sort of mm. brings out the best in people. Right. And that as a little kid, I was like, I want to be around that. And obviously, for me that manifested in dance and in live theater in New York, but it was definitely the never ending story in that sort of environment that made it real for me. Like, Oh, this is pursuable, or this mm. is, this is something that, you know, you could do with your life. Cause my parents were academics. Like that wasn't a door that I necessarily knew existed. So I think I'm super grateful for that experience. Cause it sort of, did what the film tells you to do, which is like, if you really dream about something, you can go ahead and like build that for yourself, you know? So knowing that you pursued dance and you worked in theater and a number of other things creatively since the film, prior to the film, what were your artistic interests? Was it more in dance or acting or did you have any? I was really equally invested in acting and in, in dancing. And I was totally obsessed. I mean, I would take the bus, uh, I had my little quarter and I'd go, you know, to school, like from school to my ballet studio and I danced for four hours. And then I carpooled on the weekends to San Francisco to the like musical theater school. And I took acting classes there. And yeah, I mean, I was completely, um, immersed. Now you'd mentioned, you know, when you, part of your inspiration for now working on the film, a film of your own was the birth of your daughter and looking for opportunities to guess experiences to share with her that might be similar to yours in the 1980s is the never ending story a film that you shared with her in that way I did yeah, yeah. of course and 
<laughs> I was really, really worried about sharing it with her because she is very invested in films. And like the first time I took her to like a Pixar film, which I absolutely love Pixar films. Sure. She just like ran out of the theater screaming like all the way up the air. Like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> you go, you go. Um, <laughs> so I was like, well, I really don't want to like put the never ending story on and have her. Go, ah! <laughs> so I was like, okay, I have to like wait till she's old enough because there's Artex and there's, sure. you know, Mark. And um, so, um, so I waited until she was nine. I think that's right. Maybe it was eight. No, I'm sorry. Everything's getting muddy, but waited till I felt that it was long enough for her to just be ready for it. And, uh, and it was really, really fun. She, she loved it and she stayed in the room and didn't scream. So that's great. Right. Did, <laughs> did, uh, did you tell her ahead of time you were in it or did you just let her watch it without telling her? Oh, she, she, she knew that I was in it because, um, because, uh, well, it was funny, you know, I was invited to go to Berlin to this red carpet event. They were doing a show there and for, reasons I still don't entirely understand, but I'm very, very grateful for. They just wanted me to attend the show and see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Berlin, the Neverending Story was kind of a, a bigger deal than in the States. And in the sure. States, I was a university professor and I had my dance company and she sort of knew me as a director in New York in that circle. And then when we went to Berlin, we we're like on the carpet and everyone's talking about Neverending Story. And she's like, mom, was this film like a big deal or something. <laughs> she was like, why is everybody, why is everybody making this shit? Wasn't this like a thousand years ago? And I'm like, it was a thousand years ago, <laughs> but I'm a thousand years old. And for those of us in that category, they liked yeah. it, you know? <laughs> so at that point she kind of was like, Oh, so, you know, so yeah, she knew about it. She knew about it. Right. So, of course, you know, as we mentioned, you're now working on a film, Man and Witch, with your husband that, again, is going to be, as as it's been described, and I think you describe it, as sort of an homage to those 1980s fantasy films. I can't, and you mentioned how you had a, you've had a dance company for, for 20 years. So I know I did notice, though, on, I believe it was on one of your websites, this, there is someplace a subtitle to Man and Witch where it says, The Dance of a Thousand Steps. Did this first begin as a, as a performance? Yeah, yeah. There is a big dance number in it. Um, my husband wrote it for me and for us. And so, you know, he decided to capitalize on the things that we know how to do. And so um, there's a lot of, there's a, a sort of a, a big dance number in the middle that um, I had the great fortune to choreograph with some help from some um, additional choreographers that, uh, that I, that I reached out to as well. So, um, so yeah, so this is like this, opportunity to come back to acting, but also land in a pocket that's slightly familiar to me, not slightly familiar, <laughs> very <laughs> familiar, which is sort of this, <laughs> this dance world that, yeah. that I've been immersed in. Um, so it's really fun. It's like a coming, it's like a coming home and it's like a bringing together all the different pieces of my life mm-hmm. into like one basket. And also my husband's in it and my daughter is in it. <laughs> so we put Maya in it and weirdly Maya's going to be in her first film at age 10. And I was in my first film at age 10. So it's just nice. It's like a a family affair and it's bringing together lots of things that I've loved into one basket. Right. Wow. Well, much of your work has been, and even your dance is multimedia, Yes. but your life has been multimedia. So it's interesting how there's sort (laughs) of that nexus between these two things. And you know, I think the most the greatest, I worked in New York doing some music for theater for, for a period of time, and I've seen a number of ballets, et cetera. But I think the mo- the best ballet I, I ever, I've ever seen or loved was Matthew Bourne's Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Because it incorporated puppets and masks and costumes in a way that I'd never seen. So I, yeah. And I love multimedia performances. And I know your past work uh, incorporated these different elements. And it, it seems like your new film, Man and Witch, will leverage all of that. Uh- Kind of work too, where I mean, that other people do. And for for this one, we have the creature shop made us some puppets. Mm. So we have puppetry in it, we have dance in it, and of course we have acting in it. So it is a as a kind of multimedia project, and it's it's basically like everything I've been doing, but just on steroids. (laughs) 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 Steroids. (laughs) So. 
we love that you're using puppets. Ray talks about how more movies you need to use puppets all yeah. the time. Yeah, practical effects and puppets are the the wave of the future. <laughs> or the wave so. of the past. I just I miss them so much. Like we were talking about this, and I'm gonna be real with you guys. CGI is super expensive, so you know sure. there uh, there yeah. there is also a practical side. But beyond the practical side, I just love puppets. I feel like you can mm -hmm. feel the human hand inside of it. You right. can feel the person on the other end breathing life into it. And like, that's magic to me. That's mm -hmm. like, I don't need, that is magic. You know, like how does this yep. thing oh, yeah. come to life? <laughs> so yeah. yeah the, the scariest films to me from the 1980s still are those that use practical effects. And there's some that towards the later end, they started using some more, you know, blue screen type things that were not, not in camera. And nah. your brain just checks out, you know, it's not real, you know, subconsciously enough. So budget or not, it's, you know, it's fantastic that, yeah. that you're doing that. CGI is for superhero movies. That's all I should be used for. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, the, I'm so excited for people to see these puppets. They're amazing. Yeah. The good. creature shop is crazy good. So earlier on the show, Ray and I were talking about like what made, what were the, we just sort of brainstorming the common elements of a fantasy film, maybe specific to the 1980s, that made them successful. The ones that we enjoyed the most, like Never Ending Story, uh, Princess Bride, you know, Labyrinth, all these films. For you, are there certain elements or certain key things that you think you need to hit upon in order to make a successful sort of homage? And are there things you maybe are able to improve upon because, you know, we've had the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'd also really love to hear what you guys came up with. Yeah. So after I answer, then you have to tell me. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, <laughs> no. But, <laughs> but. Mm -hmm. So for me, I feel like the things that were successful in, in 80s movies, like The Princess Bride is like, in my opinion, a perfect film. Like you just mm. can't get better than that. Um, right. And it's it's because it has, it's funny and it has, you know, uh, like a little bit of a vaudeville kind of thing going on. Mm. Like, again, they yeah. weren't doing like straight film. Like he was, they were drawing on like this vaudeville tradition, but they were putting it inside a film world. And then it had so much heart. Like the, like you, the love was, wasn't cynical at all. It was completely mm. like, what's the opposite of cynical? It was that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, sincere, sincere. genuine. It was sincere, yeah. which is like, I feel like almost like a dirty word, you know? Yeah. Like, like, oh my God, that's so sincere, right. you know? Yeah. And I, I, I miss that, you know, I miss mm. that. And I feel like the other thing is character arcs. Like if you don't have a lot of flashy stuff, then, then what you have is, is just the the develop the development of the character and then also the underdog narrative like mm. the person that shouldn't win um and i know we have that in a lot of like superhero movies too and stuff but i also think it's different if you like have all the powers in the world and then you win it's like i i don't get me wrong i love a superhero movie but like it's <laughs> less surprising okay <laughs> with your bastion and you're like this little scrawny kid whose mom died and he's been bullied like it's a kind of a, it's more exciting for somebody like that right. to find their voice, find their power, and also not necessarily win because of brawn, but win because of heart again. It's like, right. it's heart, heart, right. it's heart. That's what it is. Yeah. We, we did, uh, you know, Never Ending Story, maybe more of an exception in that sense, because I think most of the films we looked at, and so one of the elements we sort of you know, extrapolated from the films that we were looking at was that oftentimes the protagonist is a half naked person, most often a man, may have a loincloth on, and mm -hmm. he's usually muscular. So, yeah, so no, one that, was, no one was half naked with a, you know, you that he had like a chest. I think you still yes. hit it yep. on the money. He, qua <laughs> he qualifies. True. You're right. He qualifies in, the, in that world, right. right. So I, I had the never ending story on the list of yeah. dudes in loincloth with no shirt for the hero. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, maybe I liked it for those reasons too, and I just didn't totally process <laughs> yeah. that. But I don't know how comfortable I feel. Forward <laughs> 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 as the main key ingredient. Um, I mean, I think the '80s films were also kind of sexist. It, it wasn't a time. I mean, a lot of those films were from an era where it was still like a mostly male Hollywood, male male stories, male point of view. Not that I don't think men can put 
fabulous stories forward because of course they can. And, and those are some of my favorite stories. So, but I think that, you know, they're, they're one of the big fears in, in being a sort of female actress is that you're going to be used as wallpaper in things. Right. Um, I definitely mm-hmm. don't think that was true in Labyrinth or Princess Bride or Neverending Story. And I think that's part of why those movies have sticking powers is each of the characters had their own gravitas. Um, and, and so that is, I think, essentially why they reach such a broad audience. Um, so, but, you know, I think some of the less memorable 80s movies, um, it's like sort of, I think, you know, could be a little bit updated in terms of helping female characters have just a little more, something more to do, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. But but I feel, so I feel like that is something that we we tried to update in our film. We tried to create uh, very sort of three-dimensional and complex characters um, for everybody. Right. And it does seem like the audiences today are more, I don't know, primed for that. We've talked about this on the show before that it's sort of a self-feeding cycle where if in Hollywood folks are satisfied with two-dimensional ticket or, or, or shows and so they'll buy tickets, we'll make more of those. And so it just keeps going and it's, exactly. the evolution yeah. is sort of slow to, you know, change. And, and and we have enough Conans and Dars of the world. We don't, we don't need any more. We need something different. So. And like, I'm all about like just adding, you know, like this is a fantasy space. Like mm-hmm. I really believe everyone should just make stuff because then there's just more and everyone gets a chance to kind of bring their imagination to the fore. So, but for, for me, I do feel really, really excited about um, sort of n- not following a formula. We're basically breaking like all the rules. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> We're doing it our way. <laughs> hey, that's, you know, subverting that's expectations. A- yeah. No, that's yeah. important though. Yeah. The, the rest on our list were uh, magic. The world usually has magic. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's otherworldly. So it's, it's different than our world. And maybe it's in a completely different world. Along those lines, it's sort of a sub thing we had. The film should have realistic effects. For us, that's practical. If you could pull it off with computers and trick us, fine. But if you have a different worlds you're building and we don't buy into it because it looks fake, then we're going to kind of check out. Usually there's a power structure, oftentimes involving a system of government. So you've got a royal figure who's a bad guy or a royal figure who's a good guy. Oftentimes there's one powerful magic item. It could be for good or bad. Sometimes it's the weapon that's wielded by the you know, protagonist. I, you We've, we've ticked all the boxes here yes. all right, so then. far. And the final one was that oftentimes the antagonist is someone who's able to control the magic of the world. You're a magic user and, you know, in it. A sorcerer. A sorcerer, Ray says. That was the word they always yeah. used in really, the 80s. really, really good. Yeah. And you're actually making me feel good about our yeah. story, which is good because it's all happening. So we don't have time to go back. So we're sitting in the, oh, in the same pocket. Oh, very good. Yeah. So awesome. So can we talk timetable? So you are in production right now? Or are you able to give us a sense of where you're at and maybe when we might be able to expect to see something? I'll be really honest with you. This yeah. whole process has been so complicated with COVID. It was short, right? Yeah. And uh, we've had starts and stops and starts and stops and moves and just complete, you know, upheaval. So my, my position at this point is just to not pretend like I know mm. we are, you know, we're definitely, uh, we're definitely in production and we're, sh- we're, we're moving fast. So, you know, my, my prayer is, you know, that, uh, we'll, we'll be in the editing room come summer. Um, and, and then, you know, distribution after that. So, but I, I, I give that very loosely, like I just with, with COVID and with everything else the the whole timeline is much harder to pin down Mm -hmm. than in a normal situation. Yeah. Well, you know, We'll be there no matter when it comes out. If we've got to wait another few years. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it only took me, what, 30 years like this? <laughs> we've been waiting. What is it? <laughs> but, but yeah. You're smart to do it the way you do, because originally at the beginning of the year, you know, in, in 2020, and I'm only exaggerating slightly, we had expected that year to be filled with, you know, more great, quote unquote, 1980s films than uh, 1984, which was the best year for, for movies. 
but we were disappointed so many times over and over again when we would, you know, a studio would say it's been pushed back another two months and six months and a year. So I don't know if you want to answer this or can answer this. So again, this story from July of 2020 had, uh, had noted, and maybe things have changed, directed by Rob Margolis with Sean Astin, Rhea Perlman, Christopher Lloyd, and Michael Emerson appearing in the film. Yeah. So we definitely had some turnover and things have shifted with everything taking so long. And also we moved the film to Scotland. So we definitely, uh, we, we have Michael Hines as the director now, and we still have Christopher Lloyd, which is phenomenal. And we still have Sean Astin, um, Rhea Perlman. We're going to have to actually, uh, recast, but we're so sad, 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 sad about that. But the, um, you know, that just happens in one of these processes. Um, we are going to be releasing a cast list for the people that we got in the UK and the especially the, the animal voices uh, for the puppeting for all the Jim Henson creatures are, I, I, I can't say who it is yet because I've been told not to, but like <laughs> when I found out. I screamed in my kitchen. I just, I just started screaming and my daughter ran in and she said, what's going on? And I said, I think I'm being pranked. I don't understand what's happening. It's super exciting. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, so, um, so we are going to be releasing that cast list soon. And really the UK actors that we've assembled are just phenomenal and um, and yeah, there, there has been a little bit of changeover, but for the most part, it stayed the same and we were able to pick up some really great UK people. Right. Well, the best bad guys come from the UK. That's another thing. Oftentimes yeah. the bad guy oh, and, is a British and, accent. And, yes. And Michael Emerson <laughs> is, is, is still on board. Oh, very good. Um, he's actually a good friend of ours. My husband was in a play with him for almost two years in, no in New York. So it's fun to have him with us in this journey. So you mentioned production moved to Scotland. I automatically imagine that presents greater opportunities for, you know, fantasy settings, I guess. That's exactly it. I, we, we were really, um, New York was at the height of the pandemic and it was impossible to shoot. And at that time, Scotland opened up and was open for business for shooting and the locations just, you just can't beat Scotland. Scotland is so beautiful. Um, and so we moved the production and then we kind of didn't quite understand how big of a challenge that was going to be. We had to sort of form an entirely new UK company to do Mm. that in the end. And then, um, and that also presented, it's actually a UK production at this point. I'm a UK citizen. My father's British. (laughs) So that helped us. (laughs) And, um, and so we basically, like we had to start all over again, basically in the UK. Um, And I think if we'd known how hard it would all be, we probably would never have done it. I think if we'd known how hard any of this was going to be, we probably (laughs) wouldn't have done it, which is the blessing of like having no idea. And, Mm -hmm. And now that it's here, it's just incredible. Like I'm just having the time of my life being back like acting on camera. I'm having the time of my life. The look, I look at the locations and I just look at my husband and we start laughing. We're like, how, (laughs) how are we here? Like, how is this happening? Like, it's so awesome. I mean, it was so much heavy lifting. I have so many muscles from the heavy lifting, um, but it is totally worth it. It's Scotland is just is magical place. Well, Tammy, thank you so much for having been a part of our childhoods and continuing the magic that we had as kids into today. We are super excited for the film Man and Witch when it comes out, whenever it comes out. And we were anyway, but now knowing that you, you know, you checked all the boxes, boy, you can't be beat. So wait, so do I need to put a man in a loincloth? <laughs> I didn't tick that um, box. Can, can making me feel now, like I missed something. As long as you check off like three or four of the boxes, oh, yeah. you don't got to hit all of them. I'm okay. Okay. Because I'm going to be like, how can I like send a man in a loincloth through <laughs> one of the scenes? Yeah. Uh, you guys have me thinking now. I'm, I'm assuming since you're over there now that there will be some sort of castle shots or something. The castle's checked. Yeah. We definitely yeah. have that one. <laughs> awesome. I might not get the man in the loincloth in. <laughs> That's all right. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Thank you all so right. much, Tim. Well, that is super exciting uh, to know that you know, maybe the legacy of 1980s fantasy films that we were talking about earlier in the show may continue when, when Tammy and her husband's film Man and Witch finally comes out. 
it was good to know they check all the boxes, the boxes that we came yeah. up with. <laughs> yeah, they did a good job of uh, checking boxes. You know what's good though? Also, is that reinforces because look, they're the, they're the, they're in the business making these films. They also reinforced the idea that we we were on to the things that made the best fantasy films of the 1980s as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it was cool that she's a fan. Yeah, fan of. Oh, oh of, yeah. Of 80s movies. Yeah. Even though she was in one, right. she was still watching them. That's crazy. I know. I feel like we could have just had an episode where we just talk about films with her, 80s films. Yeah. Well, maybe in the future. But even all that said, I don't know if we proved anything about the 1980s. We have proven. Oh, okay. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Wow. Right. That the formula used yeah. in 1980s fantasy movies right. is still a moneymaker to this day. Whoa. It began in the 1980s. Yep. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.